Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for allowing us this time from our daily chores and the daily concerns of, of society and whatever. Uh, we're so grateful that we don't have the pressures that we read about here in uh, Isaiah. But we have other kinds of pressures. Pressures from uh, society, pressures from our own families, our children, and so forth. Help us to understand how Isaiah uh, is talking not only to the people of his time, but to the people of today. To avoid the pressures and to rely on you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Glad to have all of you with us. I see a few new people here, and we welcome them. Uh, all right, what I want to do is to really get into chapter 6 of the uh, prophet Isaiah. But in order to do that, and in order to have it make sense, we've got to go back and pick up kind of where we left off last week with God's plan of salvation. We got to the point where God is bringing a. Gee, you got me. You got me going here. <laughs> God is bringing the prophets in, all right, to counterbalance the evil of the monarchy. Remember the monarchy uh, of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation began with King Saul at the end of the second period of Jewish history. Okay. At the end of the second period of Jewish history, King Saul was elected, you might say, but it was against it was against God and against God's plan of salvation. But nevertheless, God accepted it, but he warned the people at that time that by their having an earthly king, they were going to have problems because earthly kings were not endowed with divine powers that God wanted to a shower on his people by letting or having them accept him as their only king. All right? So, after the election of King David and his son Solomon, the golden age of Judaism spread over a period of roughly 80 years. But with the death of Solomon and the monarchy then going or passing to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who was weak and did not want to <coughs> govern such a large group of people that extended all the way uh, from the uh, Sinai Peninsula all the way up to what is today modern Turkey. 
Alright. So he cut the he cut the kingdom in half, you might say. Excuse me, ladies, is this too much wind here for you? I'm going to leave it open for a little bit of fresh air, but uh, he cut the kingdom in half, and he took the lower half, Judah, and he uh, worked out a deal, you might say, with Reho- uh, Jeroboam uh, to take the northern half. The northern half is the one <clears throat> that we'll be talking about today, really. The northern half of the kingdom being uh, Israel, or retaining the name Israel. Now you have two separate nations. Okay, Judah at the bottom, or the lower part, and Israel at the upper part. Quite often, you'll find when the prophet Isaiah or the other prophets, Amos, Micah, and Hosea, who all existed about the same time period and provided the same messages but in different locations, all right, whenever they would speak as messengers of God, or when God would speak through them to the people, it was the same message to both north and south. It wasn't a different message to one than the other. Or it wasn't a message that pertained only to one side. The messages were always to both north and south. Sometimes they would pertain more to one than the other, depending on the situation. But it wasn't something that would contradict uh, or be somehow misled or uh, misinterpreted. Okay? The problem that got going here in social and political history is that because of the golden age of Judaism, these countries became very prosperous. The southern nation, or the southern province, uh, dealt mostly with North Africa and uh, the Greeks, all right? The northern people dealt with the Silk Road that went right through Galilee, all right? And so they became very prosperous. And as I said last week, with prosperity, people have a tendency to forget God. They figure, well, why do we need anything better? Why do we need God uh, when we can do all of this stuff ourselves? So what happens is that they set up their own little kingdoms and they start to go as other nations did in developing come on in Elisa Uh, they started to develop uh, these various religions if you read the story of Jezebel and Ahab you'll see how Jezebel, who was not a Jew, uh, married Ahab, 
and this goes back a little bit earlier than Isaiah, but it's one of those same kinds of things. She uh, brings in her religion from a, a pagan nation and forces the king to set it up and enjoy or, or participate, I should say, really in uh, these pagan religions and faiths and so forth. Along with that, you have a number of nations who, uh, because of the development of artillery and swords and shields and so forth, because this is the early times of the Iron Age, um, wars began to become more vicious. And if you couldn't fight against an intruder, you either became a vassal or you joined them. Well, if you can't beat them, join them, as they would say, even today. All right? And that is what happened. So we have Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, which is the area of Iran and Iraq today. And the nation and the leaders of that, I won't go into the fancy uh, names, uh, Sinatra and uh, Tiglath, uh, Pils- uh, I always say Pilsner because I'm thinking of a beer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I won't go into those names because I can hardly pronounce them, let alone kind of remember which is which. But the idea that we are faced with in chapter 6 and 7 uh, is that Assyria is trying to do expand their influence and their domination. <clears throat> and Syria, which is right next door to Israel, joins forces with the northern kingdom of Israel and they're trying to protect themselves. And what happens here is that they want the king of the south Judah to join with them. And we'll get into that in a few minutes in chapter 7. Alright. But chapter 6 of Isaiah is one where we learn a little bit more about him. I'm not going to read this. I hope that you've all had a chance to read it. What I'm going to do is sort of cover it in uh, other words, you might say. Hopefully giving you a little bit more practical idea of what's going on here. <clears throat> Since in the year King Uzziah died, which is roughly around 742, right? Uzziah was an interesting person. Um, the last eight years or so of his reign, he suffered from severe leprosy. Alright, and therefore his son, Jotham, uh, reigned as regent. And then when Uzziah died, Jotham reigned for another eight years on his own. Uh, Keep that in mind. It's not that important, but keep that in mind. I want to come back to that in a few minutes. Alright. In the year... um, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, 
with the train of his garment filling the temple. Now, this is not unusual. Prophets were known to receive visions. That's how they got some of their messages, not all, but some of their messages uh, directly from God. All right. You have the same thing in the book of Ezekiel, in the vision that Ezekiel sees. You have the same thing in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament. Uh, the visionary John uh, has visions of the time, and they all have very common uh, attributes, you might say. God is always looked upon as an old man with the, uh, white hair and flowing robes and fire and that kind of thing, okay? And a lot of that comes out of uh, the way people kind of express themselves. Whether these visions were visions in the way that we would think about them today or not, we have no way of knowing. But this is the way they were written down, and we kind of have to accept it as is. All right. Now, the next item of this is the idea that it was thought, and this goes all the way back to the time of Moses, that if anyone saw the face of God, he would automatically die. If you read uh, where that came from in the uh, book of Exodus, it is not so much if you see God, you will die, but rather, the other way around, you have to die in order to see God. But the people living didn't look at it that way. And so, over a period of time, the culture developed this understanding that if you see God's face, you are automatically going to die. Okay? And so that is where Isaiah is saying, woe is me, I'm going to die now because I've seen God. And the angel comes and says, no, you won't. He purifies him, not only his lips, but the entire being of uh, the person of Isaiah with a burning coal. And this is sort of a commissioning ceremony you have the same kind of thing in Ezekiel and some of the other prophets. Okay. Um, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, I said. Send me. And replied, And go and say to the people, uh, This here I am, uh, send me, is repeated in the book of Samuel also by Eli. Uh, so it is a common phrase used uh, not many times, but a few times in the Old Testament. Now, it is what is being said here that is somewhat difficult to understand. It says, listen carefully, but do not understand. Look intently, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people sluggish. In other words, What's happening here is God is sending Isaiah to the people of Israel. Not Judah this time, but the people of Israel. 
because they have become so obstinate, they have become so apostate, they have become so evil and sinful, that they are going to be done away with. But God wants them to have advance warning. But he knows already that they are going to ignore what the prophet is going to tell them. So the prophet is saying, after hearing all of this, uh, woe is me, how long, O Lord? Not so much when is all of this going to happen, but how and why? And then the prophecy goes on, or the message really goes on. Until the cities are desolate, without inhabitants, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, until the Lord sends the people far away, and great is the desolation in the midst of the land. We're talking now about Israel. And in the year 722, this actually happened by the Assyrians conquering uh, the northern kingdom and carting off all of the people that could do the Assyrians some good to Syria, Assyria, excuse me, Damascus, um, excuse me. they took only those people who could do them some good. Anyone that uh, was ill uh, or too young or too old or had other problems of any kind were left behind. And of course, what happens uh, when that occurs is that the strong, able-bodied people uh, that were really the backbone of the nation are gone now and therefore the entire nation crumbles. Okay. Now, that actually did happen but we're getting ahead of our story a little bit. Okay. When Isaiah preaches to the people they don't want anything to do with it. They don't like this. They don't think that this is true and this is actually true with almost all of the prophets. Later on, uh, I don't remember the exact location, but you will see where almost all of the prophets were murdered by their own people because they didn't like the message. And that's, of course, where we get the uh, phrase, you know, don't shoot the messenger. Okay, Uh, Because this is what actually did happen. Uh, And, of course, this is true even into New Testament times. Look what happened to John the Baptist. Look what happened to Jesus Christ himself. All right. The people did not like to be told uh, that what they were doing was wrong and sinful in the eyes of God. Primarily to the southern kingdom, but a lot of his beginning messages were directed to the north. Mostly in Judah. So he was in Judah. How did the information... Okay. He was mainly in Judah, but 
Yes, yes, yes. Susan. Well, it's actually to both, all right? The Judah was not quite as evil at the time, um, but the warning is to really both, because later on, the same thing happens to the southern kingdom. Yeah. Is it because the northern kingdom, because of the Silk Road, had more money and more things and, and made more idols and all the rest of it? Well, not so much... Uh, more, but the urgency developed in the northern kingdom first uh, with Assyria and Israel combining forces and then wanting uh, the southern kingdom to join them. Okay. And that's where we get into now chapter 7. <coughs> It says, in the days of Ahaz. Now, anybody notice anything when they read this going from chapter 6 to chapter 7? There's a big gap. Jotham is not mentioned whatsoever. Anyone notice that? That's it. No, now, remember, if you go right to the very first page, chapter 1, verse 1, is Isaiah reigned during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I can say those four names without any problem. <laughs> All right? These were the four kings in the order of their secession. But Jotham is not mentioned whatsoever. And this is, as I mentioned last week, or the week before, I forget, that the prophets did not work on a daily basis. They did not go around preaching constantly. They were used when they were needed for special times, special events, uh, that, and mess, special messages that God wanted certain people to or all the people to know. All right. So obviously, his time began during the uh, reign of Uzziah, but during Jotham, apparently, he was not used, because Jotham was not used uh, mentioned at all. Okay. So we go immediately then to the third king in that order, Ahaz. Okay. Now, Ahaz is the king of Judah, okay? And what is happening here is Ahaz doesn't want any part of the problem that's going on in the northern kingdom. So he's staying out of it. In fact, he's even contemplating an alliance with Assyria to be nicey-nice to them to avoid them overrunning the southern kingdom. And what's happening here in the northern kingdom is that Syria and the north 
have joined forces and they're trying to get Ahaz to join them or they're threatening to kill him and install their own king in the southern part of Israel or Judah uh, in order to join forces against Assyria. So that's the battle that we have uh, the problem going on right now. <clears throat> so why is God getting involved in all of this? That's the important thing that we have to look at. Why does God get involved in all of this? It is because God has a plan, a plan of salvation that he is going to get accomplished one way or the other. All right? Now, his plan is, and I want to go very briefly through it, because we talked about this at length last time, and it's important that you kind of understand where all of this fits in. <coughs> Excuse me. The plan of salvation basically is that God wants to return all mankind back to himself in heaven. But because of mankind's sin, there is a breach that is set up that cannot be rectified until certain conditions are um, met by the people. All right, Both sides have to work in this. And God has elected to have certain people or groups of people be his partners in the implementation of this plan. Now, if you go to page 27, in your homework assignment, your home reading assignment, I mentioned that there was a good uh, definition uh, or explanation of purgatory. Now, this got really nothing to do with Isaiah, but it's important in a way because it has to do with understanding God's plan of salvation. All right? How many of you found this? Hmm? Uh, uh, not exactly, Percy, not exactly. Go to the uh, page twenty seven. About two-thirds of the way down. It says, God is holy. And this holiness requires the purging of all immorality from those who stand in God's presence. Does it, do you follow that? In other words... We have in other places, it says, be holy because I am holy, or be holy for I am holy is the words that are actually used. It would be better understood if it was, be holy because I am holy, <clears throat> which means that mankind, sinful mankind, 
cannot live with God, or God cannot accept sinful mankind into his presence for any length of time, uh, unless that sinful mankind is purged of his sin and is made holy. And that is what the whole purpose of um, purgatory is all about. All right? If people die in the reasonably good graces of God, but they still have some sin, not serious sin, but some sin not on their soul that has not been rectified or cleared up in some way or other, purgatory is the way that it is taken care of. Uh, don't let me get into involved, involved in explaining what goes on in purgatory because I've not been there yet. <laughs> and uh, I have no way of knowing for sure. Okay, I've got my own th- theories and I'll be glad to explain that perhaps later, but not right now. Okay, but it's important that you understand what is going on here. Uh, And it is this idea of purging that we've got to really keep in mind because it happens all along the way throughout history. Now we're talking about sometime in the 7th or 8th century B.C. All right, so so from the time of Abraham, we're talking 1,300 years roughly. Okay, God has brought these people along. Time after time after time. He got them out of Egypt. He got them through 40 years, roughly, of wandering in the desert. He got them into the new promised land. And he had various people helping him along the way. Now some of these people, because of the prosperity of the golden age of Judaism, are ignoring God. God has to use drastic measures to get them to start thinking about about coming back to his way of thinking. That is going back to the wandering in the desert after the the great apostasy of the golden calf event. uh, The wandering in the desert. They They didn't wander because they didn't know where they were going. They wandered because God would not let them into the promised land until those involved in the uh, execution of the golden calf incident all died out. He couldn't exterminate them all right away because that would have left uh, leaders and the majority and families and so forth desolate. But over a period of 40 years, those involved in the execution of this golden calf event died out and it was only the young people and the innocent uh, who were brought into the promised land. you ever know that? A lot of people just never understood. Why did these people wander in the desert? And they always thought, well, because they didn't know where they were going. Not so. No. Okay. So, you have this idea of God taking drastic measures time after time after time to bring these people around to (coughs) developing a faith and a religion and a nation that would 
reflect out to others God's love. That is the point that we're trying to see here. That all of this is directed to God's love and the fact that the Jewish people were to be a light to all the nations. And instead, rather than reflecting honesty and justice uh, and moral social laws, etc., that God has given them, they band together, they become a very exclusive, uh, protective entity of their own, totally ignoring everyone else, uh, separating themselves from everyone else, <coughs> excluding themselves from everyone else, just the opposite of what God wanted them to do. And so he is punishing particularly the northern kingdom because they were the worst. And the Assyrians comes in, come in uh, a few years after this event and totally annihilates them. All right. And carts them off to uh, Assyria and brings in a lot of uh, the jailbirds and the ne'er-do-wells and uh, the infirm, etc., etc., and forces all of those that they did not want in Syria back into uh, the northern kingdom of Samaria, and that is what ends up as the Samaritans that are so much hated during the time of Christ. Is that under kind of understood now? Yes. Bethlehem. No. Bethlehem is just a few miles outside of, Jer- of Jerusalem. Remember, Bethlehem was also the city of David, and by prophecy he had to be born in the city of David, which was Bethlehem. Bethlehem is probably ten miles outside of, of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Yes. Were the people hated because they were infirm? Because people were afraid of people that were sick? People that they couldn't do anything? No. no okay. Let me stop you right there. Okay. They were hated because they weren't Jews. Oh. Okay. All right? And that is, and you think of it, this is, we're talking about the 7th century. Yeah. For 700 years from that time to the time of Christ, these people were shunned, rejected, ignored, etc., simply because they weren't Jews. Now, they tried to assimilate. They tried to accept some of the Jewish teachings, but they weren't Jews. And therefore, they were hated again, which was against what God wanted them to do. God wanted them to embrace, the Jewish people to embrace everybody. And they wouldn't do it. And that's true even today. You never see Jewish, please don't interpret what I'm saying as my hating the Jews. I have some very good Jewish friends. I just don't agree with their faith and their thinking. All right. But even today, 
you have some of this uh, <clears throat> misunderstanding, again, of Jewish people sticking only with and for other Jewish people. <clears throat> now, that's relaxing a great deal, but it's relaxing only by those who are ignoring their own Jewish faith. Have you sort of got caught up to date now as to where we are and why these things are going on? That's the important part of all of this. Now, the Emmanuel story between Ahaz and Isaiah. Isaiah goes to Ahaz and says, that God does not want him to form an alliance either with Assyria or with the uh, people from Syria and Israel. God wants Ahaz to lay low and he will protect him. That's part of the covenant that God set up with David and re- or set up with Abraham and renewed with David and all the others down through the ages. But Ahaz rejects that. And eventually, uh, he sets up an alliance with Assyria. Okay? That doesn't work out very well, as God and Isaiah uh, prophesied. All right? But the story here is, Isaiah goes to Ahaz and says, don't do such and such. And Ahaz says, well, I don't want to even accept what you're saying. And so we have this story that we often read or hear at Christmas time. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah, of course. Ask for a sign from the Lord, your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as the sky. But Ahaz answered, I will not ask. I will not tempt the Lord. Then Isaiah said, then he, Isaiah, said, listen, house of David. House of David is very important. House of David means the uh, family, the line or lineage of King David. All right. And again, that goes back to uh, what Anna asked over here, where was Christ born? In the city of David, or Bethlehem, the same city that David was born in. Right. <clears throat> says, must you weary my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The young woman, pregnant and about to bear a son, shall name him Emmanuel. Curds and honey he will eat so that he may learn to reject evil and choose good. For before the child learns to reject evil and choose good, the land of those two kings, those two kings meaning Israel and Syria, um, whom you dread, shall be deserted. That is because all of the north by that time shall be deserted. So what he's talking about is something that will happen within the next few years And, of course, in 722 B.C., it actually did happen. 
Now, this is not a prophecy about Jesus Christ. The child that is to be born is still a little bit fuzzy in everybody's mind. Historians as well as Bible scholars and scripture readers and so forth. Uh, it can be either Ahaz, I mean, uh, Isaiah's son. He had at least four that we know of. Uh, or it could be Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. Okay. Most likely, it is Hezekiah being born of one of Ahaz's uh, several wives. Okay. But we are not sure. It just so happens is that later on, as the New Testament is put together and copied many times, the tradition and the acceptance of this story is applied to Jesus Christ. And that is how we get it mentioned over and over and over at Christmas time. Now, I'm not saying that Scripture is wrong because they're not, when, when we read this quite often, uh, we can, you know, it's a nice, pious little thought to attribute this to Christ, but it technically is not. It is something that is used uh, for us to kind of think about it because in the in the Greek version of the Old Testament, <clears throat> which Catholics use in their Bible, uh, it talks about a virgin. And we automatically think about the virgin birth of, of Mary and Jesus Christ. All right? Uh, and it is that connection of the use of the word virgin in the Greek version of the Old Testament that kind of attributes this story here to Christ. In the Hebrew version, it does not say virgin. It says young woman. It's a different uh, usage of words. And you'll find that quite often if you compare the Hebrew version of Old Testament scripture to the Greek version in the Septuagint. Okay. So, just got to be a little bit careful here. Okay. Right. <clears throat> yes? Because it's important and the message that is, uh, Isaiah is giving to Ahaz is coming from God. Don't do such and such because I am with you. And that's what the word Emmanuel means. God is with them. All right. And it is the, see, you got to talk, you got to think about a lot of this in spiritual terms, not in physical or earthly terms. And that's exactly what's happening here. Emmanuel means God is with us, or more technically, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, separately, means uh, with us is God. 
All right, because E-L on the end of any special word E-L on the end of a special word. Michael, Raphael, Gabriel. All right. This means God because it comes from Elohim, which is a ancient Greek word for God. Okay. E-L-H-O-I-M. My writing isn't that great. Um, and so the E-L stands for God. So in that word, Emmanuel, it means with us is God. And what the usage of it is here is Isaiah is trying to say to Ahaz, God is with you. And God will protect you if you remain faithful to him. Alright? Does that make sense? You can see I get a little worked up in this kind of thing. Alright. Um, I want to jump over a little bit. I think we've covered a lot of this in very general terms here. Um, time passes so quickly that I've got to be careful. Chapters 9 and 10 Actually, if you would go back to the latter part of chapter 8. The promise of salvation under a Davidic king. Part of the protection that God promised in the covenant would come through the descendants of David, even though many of them were not faithful to God, uh, the whole idea of God's promise to David and to Solomon with that there would always be somebody from the house of David uh, ruling over Israel, uh, Judah uh, for all time and eternity. And of course, that applies to Jesus Christ today, uh, but not at this time. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, I want to read some of this and then we'll go on. There is no gloom where there has been distress. Where once he degraded the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, anybody know where Zebulun and Naphtali is? Okay. Remember that I said some either last time or the time before when the Israelites came after the wandering in the desert for 40 years and they came into the promised land, God settled them in specific locations by tribe. All right. Zebulun and Naphtali 
are each of one of those 12 tribes. Okay? And their location was roughly in the northern part of Israel, later to be called Galilee. Okay? All right. But they, that is where much of the problem originated up there. Where once he degraded the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, now he has glorified the way to the sea. That is the Silk Road that they're talking about. The land across the Jordan, Galilee and the nations. Now in the chapter 9, it says, The people who walk in darkness have now seen a great light. We hear this quite often at Christmas time also. Upon those who lived in the land of gloom, a light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing. They rejoice because you as people rejoice at harvest, as they exult when dividing the spoils for the yoke. In other words, this is all of the blessings that will come about these people if they remain faithful to God. But they didn't. And so that's going back here. That's why the land was so degraded. Because once the people of the north were carted off by the Assyrians and later the people of Judah were carted off by the Babylonians, their land was left deserted and degraded. Going on to the next page. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob. And its fall, and it falls upon Israel. Jacob was the patriarch, you might say, whose name was tra- changed to Israel. Okay. And he became the father of the twelve tribes. I lost my place, sir. And all the people knew it. Ephraim, that's another one of those uh, provinces or locations. And those who dwell in Samaria. Samaria was um, the capital of the northern uh, country of Israel. And those who say in ignorance and pride of heart, bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with cut stone. Sycamores have fell, but we will replace them with cedars. So the Lord raises up their foes against them and stirs up their enemies to action. What is he saying here is that God actually used the Assyrian army, the Assyrian people, the hordes that came from the northeast against both Syria You've got to kind of keep that in mind against Syria and Israel. So he is using an enemy for his own purpose against his own people, again, for his own purpose. Good, good, very good. Good point. Thank you. I wasn't aware of that. 
And it's interesting, uh, there's been other um, discoveries, you might say, just the the Dead Sea Scrolls in themselves, um, which are now housed in the Museum of the Book in Jerusalem, which I've been to, um, are very important because they bring out a lot of this history that we would not have known otherwise. Well, thank you. Judgment on the Northern Kingdom. I, I don't want to go into so much de- detail, but I think we've talked about this quite a bit. Uh, it's, it's really evident now that the North has been uh, chastised sufficiently by God, by the Assyrians, and by Isaiah. Okay. Um, if we go down to... Um, chapter 10, verse 5, the judgment on Assyria. We've mentioned the same kinds of thing. Assyria was actually God's instrument um, of judgment, which is the explanation in the commentary here. I want to get over to the Davidic king in chapter 11. But a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a bud shall blossom. Now, this can be interpreted in two ways. Jesse, anyone who who knows who Jesse was? David's father, right. Interesting story in the... the, uh, Second book of Samuel about Jesse and David. A shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a bud shall blossom. The stump in this case is Israel and Judah in a way. God is now speaking to both nations uh, through the prophet. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That is, this particular person. Now, originally, originally this was thought of as King David himself. But because Isaiah comes several years after David, obviously it would be too late to be David. And therefore, this is a true prophecy of who? Jesus. Yes. Okay. Now, if you think about it, for those of you who are gardeners, quite often, if you cut off the main branch of a small tree or a shrub or something, but leave the root there, it will sprout. Not always, but almost never in my case. (laughs) But quite often it will sprout. And that is kind of what we're talking about here. It becomes a, a new endeavor, a new life, you might say, from the original source, but something totally new. All right. What it's saying here is Judaism in itself is going to sprout 
something new. And so this is not only meant to appear as Jesus Christ, but it is also meant to appear to be the Catholic Church, which is far more important than it, if it were just Christ himself. The stump here uh, is the basic Judaism, the faith originated by God, beginning with Abraham, but who has turned its back not once but several times against God. It is now sprouting or will sprout in the future a new growth. And that growth will be through Christ and the church. The spirit of of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Fear in this case does not mean fear and trembling. It means reverence. And that's quite true. You know, so many people think, oh, the Old Testament talks all about fear and uh, punishment and so forth and so on. Not always. Fear in this case does not mean fear as we think about it, but rather reverence. Or you might put it in the fear of offense. Offending God. Not by appearance shall he be judged, nor by hearsay shall he decide. But he shall judge the poor with justice and decide fairly for the lands afflicted. These are all of the attributes that God has been trying to get the Jewish people uh, to absorb and reflect to others, but they refused. He shall strike the ruthless with the rod of his mouth. What does that mean? By his teachings. The rod of his mouth. In the the New Testament, you will hear, uh, particularly in the book of Revelation, the use of a double-edged sword. A double-edged sword is not Uh, what we normally would think of it, the double-edged sword, is how scripture, holy scripture, can be interpreted both towards good and towards bad. Justice shall be the band around his waist, and faithfulness a belt upon his hips. The same description used uh, regarding the one of the four horsemen in the Apocalypse or the uh, book of Revelation. Then the wolf shall be a guest of the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young. This is not something that is talking about uh, exactly what it is saying, the words here, but in the symbolic meaning of this. In other words, it is the greatest uh, experience of peace. Hope and peace. 
the calf and the young shall browse together. Well, that never would happen in reality. What he's talking about is <coughs> enemies who were so much against each other will come together in peace with a little child to get, guide them. There we're again. The little child is the Christ child uh, to begin with. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down. The lion shall eat hay. In other words, this is going on and on. But it is a prayer, you might say, of peace and hope in the near future. So wherever God punishes, severely in many cases, as he did both with Assyria, with Israel and with Judah later, he always hand pulls out a peaceful branch. Okay? Now, that branch in this case is called a remnant. And you'll see that term used several times here. And that remnant is really the small number of exiles that return from Babylon beginning in the year 539 and used by the good graces of another pagan king, another member of God's many partners, you might say, Cyrus the Great. But we're getting a little ahead of our story here. Uh, That will happen when we get over uh, later on. The Song of Thanksgiving, I'm going to go to chapter 12 here. Chapter 12 is very short, but it is also very beautiful. uh, And I think we should pay attention to it. On that day, you will say, I give you thanks, O Lord, though you have been angry with me. Your anger has abated, and you have consoled me. And this is true whenever God punishes anyone. This is a kind of prayer that we should think about and kind of recite. It is used in the uh, Liturgy of the Hours frequently. You know, the Liturgy of the Hours is what the priest used to call the brevary. It has become more common and is used by many people uh, as a daily devotional. uh, And it is recited in there quite often. Though you have been angry with me, your anger has abated, and you have consoled me. God indeed is my Savior. I am confident and unafraid. For the Lord is my strength and might, and he has been my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the fountains of salvation, and you will say on that day, Give thanks to the Lord, acclaim his name. Among the nations make known his deeds. Proclaim how exalted is his name. You see, this, even though the Jewish people experienced this several times, They did not go out and share this with other nations. And yet, they were envious of other nations as far as their kings, their freedom of expression, particularly with uh, pagan gods, and the prosperity that other nations had 
But when it came to uh, honoring God who gave them so much, it wasn't there. And it's interesting because you get this from their own writings. If you read the scriptures and learn how to put them all together to see the big picture, you wonder how could the Jewish people not accept the teachings of God and the teachings of Christ. How could they just totally overlook or refuse to look at their own writings which foretold the teachings and the coming of Christ? And yet they didn't. And they still don't. Why? Because Christ was an itinerant preacher with no background, or so it was thought. They didn't see that all of the scriptures that preceded him in the Old Testament referred to him in one way or the other. They refused to go back because they were looking for a high and mighty person like King David. David was a glorious person who united uh, all of the little kingdoms that had been set up prior uh, to David and united them into a glorious nation and developed then, as I said, the golden age of Judaism. So later on, when the whole idea of a Messiah was to come, they were looking for somebody like David who would be sort of a knight on a white horse, you know, coming with great splendor and glory and get rid of the Romans and they would get back to the glories that they exist, that existed among them during the time of David and Solomon. Well, that wasn't God's plan. God was not interested in uh, heaven on earth. He was interested in heaven back with him. And therefore, that did not fit God's plan. But God gives them the Messiah that was promised earlier. But he is this person that came from Nazareth. And, you know, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay. No. But if we look upon it and see that Jesus really was the messenger, the divine messenger that was eventually sent from God, the epitome of prophets, then we can't help but understand. But two things got to be in place. The gift of faith within our minds and our hearts and are willing to accept it. If we know who Jesus is, but we're not willing to accept what he represents, who he is, why he came, then everything else is going to fall by the wayside. And that is so unfortunate. I have 
I know a person right now in mind, a good person, very good person. But this person refuses to accept the fact that Jesus is sent from God and is the Savior of all mankind. And therefore, this good person lives their life doing good things, but totally ignores anything having to do with religion. They live by the moral law, but they cannot go one step further. And that is true with the majority of the Jewish people. They are good people. They really stick together. They help themselves out. You never see any Jewish people in soup kitchens or lines uh, or uh, welfare offices waiting for a, a check. You never see many Jewish people uneducated. They help themselves. But unfortunately, they do not go out and be a light to the nations. And that is really what all of us are asked to do. And that is why the Catholic Church has spent so much time in sending missionaries out throughout the world. We don't have to start sending missionaries out as much as we used to because we can use the internet and radio and Twitter and, you know, Facebook and all of those. Uh, but for centuries, uh, if you think about it, all California was really settled by the Jewish people. Ah, pardon me. No. Pardon me. <laughs> by, the by the Catholic Church and the missionaries. Excuse me. Uh, well, I'll have to erase that one from the uh, re- recording. Uh, anyways, I hope you got a little sense of the history behind Isaiah and where he's coming from. All right? And we will continue this idea of how Isaiah fits in with God's plan of salvation because you've got to see how it comes together and works together uh, towards a conclusion. The conclusion is not at the time of Christ's death and resurrection. That's only the beginning of the major part. That is what we call the end times. The end times are those things where everything that has been done or was necessary to be done to complete the opening of heaven uh, to mankind was accomplished with the death and resurrection of Christ. And so everything else from that point on is considered the end times which leads us and which leads us towards the goal of our salvation. For those of you do not who do not have that, I have a little diagram up here. Those who have been with me for many years have probably several copies of this. Uh, if you, those of you who don't have a copy of this and would like it, it spells out as much as can be done uh, God's plan of salvation. Okay, through the use of Scripture. And on the back side is how the divisions of Scripture all point to the event of Christ 
And the New Testament points to the ultimate goal of eternal salvation. Okay? I'm going to leave this up here at the table, and you can have a copy of it. Uh, there's should be enough here for most people. That's true. That's true. Isaiah is, and it's interesting that of these Dead Sea Scrolls, now, there's nothing about the New Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're all from uh, the Old Testament, or they are histories of the Essenes at that period of time, but not any writings of the New Testament. <clears throat> of the books that are in this museum in Jerusalem, called the Museum of the Book, <clears throat> The only book of the Old Testament that is in there in its entirety is the book of Isaiah. And it is the one most ignored by the Jewish people. That's what you're saying. That's right, because they don't like what it says. It's not a happy book, I'll tell you. It isn't, but it's there for a reason. And that reason is applicable to the New Testament times and to current times just as much as it was back then. Any other questions? Cora? Cora asks, are the Jews still waiting for the Messiah? Um, some are, but the idea is pretty well uh, faded out. The idea is pretty well faded out. Um, I've just got through, well, not just, but over the past year or so, I've read four different books on Judaism, uh, two by the same author, and then I couldn't believe that they all felt the same way, so I wanted to pick a few other authors to sort of compare them. But apparently, they're all thinking pretty much the same way. Uh, that Judaism is no longer looking for um, Messiah in the way they were. Obviously, the original idea was that the Messiah would get rid of the, Jew of the Romans and they would be free people. You see, once they came back from Babylon, they were never totally free. They were never sovereign rulers of themselves. Because even under uh, in Babylon, first they were under the Babylonians, and then they were under the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Okay? And prior to that, of course, they were under the domination of the Egyptians. So that is when the whole idea of a Messiah develops it's because at first they began to think, well, we're not really in a promised land any longer. And so over a period of time, they developed the idea, well, God must be the promised land. So the idea changed from a promised land being physical land on earth to being back united with God in heaven. That did not exist until around the 4th century B.C. And then, 
who will lead us to that. So the idea of Messiah, which stems all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses predicts that a, a prophet like himself will lead the people into a new promised land. Then they take that and they draw, well, who's going to lead us from Israel now into this new promised land of heaven? And that's when the idea of a Messiah begins to develop, but not until around the end of the fourth or the third, beginning of the third century BC. The word that was asked last week by someone here, and I didn't fully explain. God has never called them the chosen people uh, in that context. The words are used, but not exactly with that meaning. They were chosen, all right, but that implies, as we think of it today, as somebody set apart, very special. They took that meaning to themselves and applied it to themselves without earning it. They were chosen all right by God. They were a nation set up and developed by God, but for the purpose of taking God's word, using it among themselves, developing a nation of harmony and peace and justice and reflecting it out to all the other nations. In other words, be becoming a true light to all other nations. And they refuse to do that. I find it interesting that today when you talk about the that we always end up saying that's our assessment. Uh, of what they think of themselves. Okay? Yeah. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for this time together of celebrating our freedom to be able to discuss our faith as well as other faiths or the lack of our faith and other faiths. But help us to really understand what it is that you want us to know, to understand, and to accept. Because knowing and understanding is not complete without accepting and following through. So we thank you for this freedom. We ask that you continue to bless us to open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you want us to hear, to observe, and to follow. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things.